0: Do you remember the story, it's in Luke, when Jesus was about 12 years old. Um, and they go up to the Feast of Passover every year, it says. He goes up with his family and, you know, there would have been a whole bunch of people traveling together, extended family and friends. I mean, every year they'd travel up to Passover together. I mean, Jesus is, is 12, as I said, he's, he's traveling up to Jerusalem. Uh, and on this occasion, uh, Joseph and Mary, they get a day's journey, it says, a day's journey back towards their home in Nazareth. And then they realize that Jesus just isn't there. They so where, said, where's he gone? And, they, and they're looking around. This is, I mean, this is the kind of community that, um, that you, you grow up in those kind of days. It, it, you just expect someone else has got your kids. You know, this is kind of what we do here at Calves, right? We, I don't know where my kids are most of the time. Um, they just, and, and it's been like that since they were born, really. My oldest is now 14. Um, the youngest is now seven, but, but we pretty much just assume that someone's looking after them somewhere, right? So fair assumption and Jesus is, is not there, they can't find him and they, and they travel back to Jerusalem looking for him because they realise he's just not there. Uh, and they get back to Jerusalem and, 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 and do you remember where they find him? Do you remember? In the temple, right? And do you remember what he's doing? He's sitting there talking with these teachers of the law uh, and Jesus is just having a chat with these teachers of the law. A 12-year-old kid, that's Raphael's age, talking with these teachers of the law about... Um, who knows what? That doesn't say. Um, and and Mary comes in and all in a fluster and Joseph comes in and all in a fluster. They say, where, where were you? Where were you? We, you know, we were worried sick. Where were you? We'd been an, a, a day away and it took them two days to find him. Was, I think it was three days total before they found him. They were, I do not know what he did for food. He was Jesus. He was probably all right. And, and I'm like, and, and they said, where were you? You, you, you shouldn't have, you know, you should have told us. Why didn't you come with us? And what does Jesus say? He says, you should have known that I'd be about my father's business. You should have known that I would be about my father's business. And for the next 30 minutes or 40 minutes, whatever it takes, um, I want us to wrestle with this question of what, what does it mean to be about our father's business? What does it look like for the imperfect person like you and me because let's be honest we're not jesus how do we actually do that how do we be about our father's business let's pray and we'll get stuck into the text father we just thank you oh for the gift of music and for the way that we can express our thoughts to you our praise to you through music thank you for the gift of fellowship thank you for that, that beautiful breeze thank you for a lovely weekend of Sunshine, give us more of those, God. Thank you for this text, for Paul, who was so faithful uh, in joyfully proclaiming what you were doing and what you would do in the church through all ages. And Father, we're just, we're just grateful now for the opportunity to come and to study this amazing text. Be with us by your spirit, Lord God, and, and move in us as a church, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So if you, if you haven't been with us for the last nine weeks, um, you, you would have missed the fact, but the rest of you know we've been going through this book of Ephesians. Uh, this is week 10, um, and we, we're working our way chapter by chapter uh, and verse by verse through this book, which is kind of what we do, right, at Cal's. Uh, It gives us the opportunity to hear the whole counsel of God. This is why we teach verse by verse and chapter by chapter. It's not um, a doctrinal necessity to teach chapter by chapter and verse by verse, but it is what we do because we want to hear the whole counsel of God. And we're not going to always do it. There'll be topicals here and there, but, but it's been a really sweet time for me of being challenged every single week, of being encouraged every step of the way, And I guess by way of reminder, you know, this letter was written by Paul to Ephesus, which is a church on the western coast of Turkey, modern day Turkey. And he writes this letter to really to provide some encouragement to them because there had been a bit of suffering going on, hadn't there? There'd been some hardship. And and to Paul, most of all, he was in prison when he's writing this letter. And he wants to encourage them with the truth that's in the gospel, And he outlines that truth of what it means to follow God in those first three chapters of Ephesians. He he, he outlines what it means to be children of God. And and we we had this kind of phrase that we say for this this whole series. It's sit, walk, stand. And the first three chapters, we are sitting. We are sitting in the light of what God has done and is doing through his church. And here in in these next couple of chapters, we're we're in the walking bit. Walking out that faith. And last week, James did an amazing job of really walking us through the end of chapter four with this wonderful truth that we put on a new life in Christ. You, you know, it's like we, we've taken off the old life. We're like a garment. We've taken off the old life and we've put on this new self. And as it turns out, this changes everything about how we relate to one another. But specifically, we looked last week at, at, the, at truthfulness at anger at forgiveness and at kindness. And now we come to chapter five, where we see three further results of the new life that we have in Christ. So for ease of of navigation, we're going to just divvy this passage up. It's a pretty long passage and we'll get through it, try and get through it as quickly as we can. Um, but, But we have three sections, three chunks. Number one, verses one to five, walk in love. Section number two, Verses 6 to 14, walk in light. And section number 3, verses 15 to 21, walk in wisdom. So let's dive right into chapter 5, verse 1. Therefore, says Paul, be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Uh, One of my teachers at Bible college used to say, whenever you see a therefore, ask what it is therefore. Right. So why is he saying therefore? Well, because since, as it says in the last verse, God has forgiven you, the last verse of chapter 4. God has forgiven you, and with everything that entails, therefore, imitate God. It says, as beloved children. So we have to imitate God, the Father, not to become his children, take note, but because we are his children. Now, I see this all the time in my kids. My kids imitate me. They do what I do. Uh, sometimes that's a good thing and sometimes not so good. Sometimes it's a little bit embarrassing. Like, Where did that come from? And then I go, oh, that was me. You know? And you find yourself, even as a parent, don't you saying things to your kids that you thought you would never say to your children? You know, oh, that was my dad talking. That's weird. Um, it's natural to imitate your parents. It's natural. But we imitate God because we are his children. We don't imitate to become his children. It is the result of relationship with God. That's why we imitate God. But we're also called, you'll see in the next little verse there, to imitate Christ, aren't we? So there's God the Father who we imitate and we imitate Christ. And Christ loved us so much, it says, what, that he gave himself up as a sacrifice. In our family devotions this week, we, we actually, this exact verse came up, which was really cool. Uh, and it, it was in reference to the part we were looking at in our family devotions in the book of Leviticus, where it describes all these different kinds of offerings. Um, and what Leviticus says is that there's more than one kind of offering that's given. The first of the two mentioned in this verse here in verse 2 is, is the sacrifice, the, which was the offering for sin. It's the offering that would result in forgiveness for the one who is making the offering. And as we know, this is exactly what Jesus did, isn't he? He died as a sacrifice for the sins of the world. In first John chapter two, it says, He is the propitiation, oh, it's a fancy word, propitiation just means like the covering or the, the thing that makes us right. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. But what's really cool about this verse, I think, is that second type of offering that Jesus represents. It's the fragrant offering. And this went beyond the basis of relationship, that, that, that's forgiveness of sin, into sacrificing something that you, that you own simply to please the Lord. So it wasn't about getting right with the Lord. You're already right with the Lord. That's the sacrifice for sin. This is about pleasing the Lord. And I think this sounds a lot like not only that that basic doctrine of justification where we are made right with God in our relationship, but also sanctification, being made holy. Remember, Peter says, be holy for the Lord your God is holy. And this is the process of being transformed more and more into the likeness of Jesus Christ, which incidentally is exactly the same likeness that we are created to express. And I think it fits so well with this context of, of a transition between putting on the new self and then walking in love. What does it mean, though, to be imitating Christ? I think in this context it means, you know, as we see here, love through self-sacrifice. That's what it means to imitate Christ. And my question for us today is how would it look if we were to love like that how would our churches be different if we were to love sacrificially like christ loved us how would your families look different how would your workplace look different just picture for a second if you would with me just picture someone in your life who you have a difficult time loving they just get on your nerves or or they say hurtful things or they make your life somehow just difficult. What would it mean to imitate Jesus to that person? Because you remember, the Bible says that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. How would it change your relationship with that person if you were to die to yourself? And love them sacrificially. Now the crazy thing is, it's going to be difficult, right? But the crazy thing is that we are able to imitate Christ in his sacrifice because of the sacrifice of God in Christ. And that's the the positive case that we see for what it means to walk in love, to love God sacrificially but now we move on to the things that we are to avoid in that walk verse three go to verse three with me and it gets a bit heavy here so stay with me but sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among the saints let there be no filthiness nor foolish talk nor crude joking which are out of place but instead let there be thanksgiving for you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or is covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. So there are three particular behaviors that Paul singles out, aren't there? And these are so important that they shouldn't even be named. And what does that mean? I think clearly in this context, it's not a prohibition about talking about these behaviors. That's not, that's not what it means. Um, because you'll see later on that's exactly what he tells us to do. Um, it's okay to talk about these, these things for the sake of rebuking them. But it is saying that there should not be any occasion for these things to be named as having happened and having occurred on behalf of committed believers. Nor should any discussion of these things lessen their sinfulness. You know what it's like when you you, know, you, go to, you go to work and there's conversations in the tea room, right? Um, and some of those conversations are fine, everyday conversations, but some of them end pretty depraved, don't they? Uh, and, and God's saying, don't get involved in that stuff because words lead to actions. And the more you minimize something, the less of a problem it seems, the more likely you are to get involved in it. But you'll notice another basic point here that again, you are saints, therefore you won't do this is what, it, is what it's pretty much saying. Not that you, you don't do this so that you can be saints, right? We have this idea in the modern world of what a, a saint is. And um, it's probably the most misappropriate, well, one of the most misappropriated words, I think from scripture you say oh yeah she's a real saint you know she's you've done wonderful things and it's not helped by the catholic church you know sainting people what's the word for that can all you grow up catholic what is it i don't know we'll just call it sainting yeah canonizing They show um it's not helped by that, because that, it just gives us the wrong idea of what a saint is. A saint isn't someone who's perfect. Now, a saint is someone who's holy. It's the same word, hagios, it's being set apart, right? But we're set apart, we are saints so that we don't do these things. We don't not do these things so that we are saints. But he also says that filth and foolishness and crude joking um, are not to be involved with either. And by by context, it's all these things of a sexual nature. So why does Paul seem to harp on here about sexual sin? I mean, and also covetousness, which is kind of related. I mean, isn't all sin the same to God? I mean, doesn't all sin separate us from God? So why is he focusing on this stuff? And the answer is, all sins are the same to God kind of yes and no it's it's a little bit more nuanced than that you need to realize that there is no sin that's too great for God to forgive and any sin no matter how small by our standards is completely incompatible with his nature these things are both true and therefore it requires forgiveness no matter how small that sin is but that's not the whole picture is it so whilst all sins separate us from God and we need forgiveness, they're not all the same. There are some that God seems to take particularly seriously in both the Old Testament and the New Testament, like sexual sin and covetousness here. Why? Because of their impact on us and on our world. Remember that the church is spoken of as the bride of Christ. Yeah? Yeah. And the very institution of marriage between a man and a woman is a picture of the relationship that Jesus has with Christ, which Jesus has with the church. So anything that threatens marriage, whether that's adultery or lust or sexual impurity, anything that threatens marriage also threatens the picture that Christ is building in the world of his relationship to the church. And this is especially so when Christians themselves engage in these behaviours. Likewise, covetousness is, is an unnatural desire for something that you don't possess. You can see how closely this ties in with sexual sin, number one. But even if it's not sexual sin, Paul says right here that it is idolatry. When something we want is more important to us than the pursuit of God himself, then that's idolatry. And idolatry seriously threatens the church. In Paul's day and also, I think you'll agree, in our day as well. And to raise the bar even higher, it's not just the sexual act in itself, but also the filthiness, the foolish talk, the crude joking that saints are to reject. It's quite simple, just don't go there, is what Paul's saying. And this is a challenge for men and women to remain pure. Now, I'm not going to go into personal details here, but I do want to say it's very easy to get stuck in a rut as a Christian man in this area. Sexual sin is incredibly attractive in many ways, and it rarely begins with a full-blown affair. Now, more and more, sexual sin is affecting women in our world as well, for various reasons. But I'm of the firm opinion that we need to be talking about this as a church more and not less. I'd much rather be in the trenches of spiritual warfare with a man who is committed to growth in this area, committed to accountability, committed to purity, And surrounded by people who seem to have it all together, and yet for some reason they're never willing to share their struggles. I'm not saying this is something that everyone struggles with, because it's not. But statistically, it's going to be a large number. We need to not pretend that everything is just fine all the time it reminds me kind of of this old movie I watched when I was a kid called Eric the Viking. I don't know if you, any of you know it. It's like a really, really bad movie. But um, the, the idea is there's this world that is kind of floating on the ocean and they're all Vikings. Um, and it turns out that the world is actually flat and there's an edge of the world. And the, the, the kind of this land that these people live in is about to fall off the edge of the world. In the meantime, it's sinking. And um, the king um, everybody's kind of up to their ankles in water while this, while this, uh, this whole country is sinking. Uh, and the king's like, we are not sinking. I repeat, we are not sinking. Um, and, and around them, everybody's just like, the people's heads start to go underwater. And more and more people just start disappearing. Um, we are not sinking. It's complete denial of a problem. And I think that we can do that in the church as well. See, this kind of thinking that we are not thinking is deadly. It's deadly because it leads to a denial of a problem which leads to never fixing the problem. And this kind of stuff is deadly to your witness. It's deadly to your mission and potentially deadly to your faith. Now, men, if you want to talk to me more about how I manage this, then find me and talk to me. Talk to me. I'm happy to share privately the lessons I've learned that have actually worked for me in this area. But we could also apply this strategy to the equally dangerous sin of covetousness. How many people have fallen away from the faith because their love for God has been neglected while their love for the things of this world increase? We live in an upside-down world. We are called to love people and to use things. And so often we find ourselves loving things and using people. Perhaps we need to think also about putting some accountability in place, not just for sexual sin, but for covetousness as well. That's something I encourage you to talk to your brothers and sisters about i mean this is one of the things that i think we lost when the reformation happened was you know the bible talks about confess your sins one to another and there was this kind of very um structured way of confession in the catholic church and obviously i reject a lot of teaching of the catholic church but but the confession part i mean we don't do that do we we don't do it uh, or to do it i should say is rare and i think we've thrown out in a sense the baby with the bathwater in that way Confess your sins one to another. And this is what it's about. But Paul doesn't just leave it at stop sinning or else. He gives us the alternative. He says it's thanksgiving. Look at the text. Thanksgiving. I've never seen a better cure for resentment, for anxiety, and for wrong thinking than thankfulness. And what does thankfulness do for covetousness? It's such a powerful reality. The more we are thankful, the less our heart desires what's outside of God's providence. But this passage gets a bit heavy again in verse 5. Did you notice that the same three sins are listed together twice? Okay, have a look. Verse 3, verse 5, the same three sins. Okay. Have a read of it. That's because in the second mention, it's different. And you'll notice a slight difference there. We go from these sins being committed in verse 3 To people who actually habitually and unrepentantly continue in these sins. You see, since sainthood implies obedience, and it does, then anyone who does these disobedient things habitually and unrepentantly is not a saint. It sounds heavy, but it's exactly what Paul says. Anyone who does these disobedient things habitually and unrepentantly is not a saint. This is not my opinion. This is just what the text says. Now, as much as as repeated sin impacts our witness and our character, it makes no difference how many times you return to the same behavior. God remains gracious. He will forgive you. But I want to be really, really clear here. If this unrepentance is you, if you are finding yourself in persistent and unrepentant sin, the solution is not to try harder to be a better saint. It's not. It's to recognize that if this is you, you are not a saint. And something needs to change urgently. But remember, God is gracious. I love that verse in 2nd Chronicles chapter 7. It says, "If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and I will forgive their sin." And I will heal their land. God is gracious and he offers forgiveness no matter how far down the road we get. And that concludes for us this section on walking in love, which includes avoiding evil. And it brings us to this second section, walking in light. Uh, before we read it, it's pretty worth defining what we mean by light. You see, light here means goodness with a particular emphasis on truth being known. So where it says light... You could almost substitute in truth and goodness, right? Let's read it. Verse 6. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore, do not become partners with them. So the first challenge to truth and goodness or or light is these sons of disobedience who, who probably were people who claimed to be believers on the context And it seems that they've been trying to convince people that this list of sins that we've encountered in verses 3 to 5 is really not that bad, they say. So they're challenging truth and they're challenging goodness. And, And people are saying that wrong things are right things. Does that sound familiar to you? I mean, I hear it almost every single day, that wrong things are right things. How often does that happen in our world? There will always be those that try to tell you that your sin is okay. Remember when um, Kendall and I were first saved, we, uh, we were traveling overseas. Uh, I had been a backslidden Christian for a few years and Kendall had never given a life to the Lord at all um, and we, we both independently came to faith, um, broke up and got back together again within a few months. As Christians, it was a completely different kind of relationship. But we had planned, when we got home, we had planned to um, live together. Uh, and it was not obviously going to be a very good idea. Um, but it was the only place I had to stay. We had separate rooms and all this stuff. And, um, and we were looking for a church because we'd just become believers. And we went along to Uniting Church um, down the road here. Uh, and we said... Um, now this is, We're new Christians and you know, we're just looking for a new church. Um, and we said, we're currently looking for another place for me to, to move to because you know, we've just become believers and we realize it's not good for us to be living together. And the, the pastor at the United Church said, oh, don't worry about that. You know, it doesn't matter. You know, do whatever, pretty much. It was, didn't it? It was crazy. And we're like, that's not what the Bible says. That's not what the Bible says. The Bible says that sex, that intimate relationships are between a husband and a wife and nothing else. There will always be someone to try that tries to tell you that your sin is okay. You need to be forewarned of this reality. This is why the Holy Spirit has prompted Paul to write what he did in the first place. It seems that things don't change nearly as much as we sometimes imagine. We've got the same problems in the twenty-first century we're in, aren't we, as they had in the first century? So, what's the exhortation? It says, "Don't partner with them. Don't partner with them. Don't partner with them. Whatever that looks like. I don't know how else to say it. Just don't join in. Not that we are to avoid unbelievers. No. How else would we, we ever fulfil the great commission? But do not partner with them in this." don't be sucked in to that way of thinking. Why? Because you know better. It says in verse 8, "For at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light, for the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true, and try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord." There's something so exciting to take note of here. It's it's not that you were in darkness. Read it. No, that you were darkness and you are now light. It is not your location that has changed. It is your very being, your identity that has changed. So walk as children of light and try to discern, verse 10, what is pleasing to the Lord. Figure out what pleases God. Yes, it takes work. Try to discern, it says. You need to actually put effort in to find out what it is that pleases the Lord. But the implication is then go and do it. You don't find out and then go, oh yeah, cool, now I know. Uh, you find out and go, now I'm going to do it. And avoiding the opposite, again, is also an imperative. Verse 11, take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. For it is shameful even to speak of the things that they do in secret. But when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible. For anything that becomes visible is light. To expose means to make visible, i.e. to bring to light. And I suspect here that shameful, when it says shameful, it's used in the sense of being embarrassing, Rather than being morally wrong to talk about these things. After all, how do you expose something without speaking about it? Wouldn't make sense. I also suspect uh, a translation difficulty in verse 14. It says, because no matter how much we, uh, where it says that for anything that becomes visible is light. Right? I think, you know, no matter how much we illuminate sin, it never itself becomes light. So there's something going on with that translation that we need to try and figure out what's happening. So how hard are we to understand this verse? I think that the light that it's talking about here is the knowledge of that sin and all the consequences, the knowledge of the sin and the knowledge of the consequences of that sin. Let's take, for an example, lying, okay? So if we expose dishonesty itself, not just a dishonest action, but if we expose dishonesty, the very notion of dishonesty, and we bring understanding about what the, the consequences of a dishonesty are. We, we discovered that dishonesty brings trust into question. It ruins trust. It prevents intimacy. It prevents growth. It prevents an accurate understanding of what the problems are in a particular situation, etc., etc., etc. So the visibility of that issue becomes a light to those who see it. So when you understand in the light, when things are brought to light and their consequences are brought to light, it becomes a light to others. So my question for us is, how can we bring light to our peers? At school, at work, at uni, with our unbelieving families. Jesus said, remember, he said that you are a light to the world and a light shouldn't be hidden. One answer I think might be found in asking the question, what has Christ done for you to bring light? How has he transformed you? How has Jesus reached into the darkness of your soul with the light of his love? And I think starting with sharing that story itself might be a good place to start. Verse 14, the end of verse 14, 14b, therefore it says, Awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. In your translation, it might have this separated with a little bit of an indent. and um, It's because there's very good evidence that this section was actually an excerpt from a worship song. Okay? Now, this excites me for two reasons. Number one, we see the permission given to express uh, thoughts about God creatively. Right? And as a worship leader, as someone who's done worship leading for a long period of time and does like to write the occasional song, I, I think that's exciting to me. That God's okay with us expressing our thoughts about him creatively. Remember, when this song was written, it wasn't scripture, right? And it's not even in scripture. That particular phrase is not, there's nothing quite like it in scripture. There's a a verse in Isaiah which has some similarities, but it really misses the point. It's a long way off. So this person is expressing, yes, something that is is true in scripture and is expressing that creatively. And And then Paul ends up putting it in his letter and it becomes... Scripture under the influence of the Holy Spirit. And that's really cool. And, and the second thing that I think is, is really cool about this verse is what it's actually saying about God's moving in the world. This is a call to sleepers. Who are the sleepers? Well, the sleepers who are those who don't yet know God, who aren't yet in a saving relationship with God. And it says, arise from the dead. And it says, Christ will shine on you. In other words, have new life. And the transforming truth of Christ will change your minds and change your hearts. So it's evangelistic, right? But how many non-believers are reading this in Ephesus, do you think? Probably none, I think. So why is it here? Well, I think it's here to stir the believer, that's you and me, to stir us with the truth of its content, to stir us to the purpose for which we are called, which is to go and make disciples, to go and to be salt and to be light. Church, the world is full of sleepers, of dead people walking. And Christ has purposed to use you as the conduit by which he reaches into our world and turns on the lights. And the question is, are you willing? Am I willing? And we move on to this third and and final section, walk in wisdom. Verse 15, it says, Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. That word, make the best use of, is a word that was used in the marketplace uh, in ancient Greece, uh, in ancient Rome, Greek word the words "exagerazo," uh, and it literally means just get the best deal. So you would you would go and exagerazo, you would get the best deal for a particular thing. So what Paul's saying is 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 get the best deal out of life. Uh, get the best deal. I, I was reading this week about a fellow called William Wilberforce you've probably heard of him. Um, he lived in the late 1700s He came from a wealthy family. Uh, he was um, involved in he poli- became involved in politics uh, it was something he was quite interested in. He was a very naturally articulate person, um, very charismatic um, and he found himself in politics as a non believer really kind of the, the pre a nominal believer we 'd call him someone who grew up in the church but at age twenty seven He has this conversion experience, um, and he realizes that there's a different way to live your faith than what he's been doing. And soon after that conversion experience, he becomes interested in what's happening in the slave trade. And he discovers the problems with the slave trade, the evils that it is promoting, um, the very evil nature of it in the first place. And he commits his life to its abolishment. And soon after um, that, he is pushing this agenda in, in the parliament of, of Britain. Now, he's too conservative for the progressives. They don't really like him very much. He's also too radical for the conservatives, so they don't like him very much either. And he's got friends in a lot of different places. And he's, as I said, he's very charismatic, but he's not, he doesn't fit into a political party. But by 1789, he had 12 bills that were passed through parliament, that all ended up getting overturned on legal technicalities. 1789. So he didn't stop. He had other bills that were all defeated in 1791, 1792, 1793, 1797, 1798, 1799, 1804, 1805. He saw that God's providence had put him in this position with this unique set of skills and this unique abilities, and he didn't quit He battled poor health, he had very poor health. He was bedridden for weeks at a time. He was vilified by his opponents who spoke, I quote, of the damnable doctrines of Wilberforce and his hypocritical allies. Hypocritical allies, that sounds familiar, doesn't it, as as a criticism. His friends were worried for his safety, like his literal safety of his life, but he kept on going. William Wilberforce discovered three days before his death that the final bill to ensure the freedom of slaves across the entire British Empire had been secured. The historian uh, GM Trevelyan said, one of the turning events in the history of the world. But what you might not know about William Wilberforce is his other interests as well. He was dubbed, I'm going to read this uh, from a, a biography he was dubbed the prime minister of a cabinet of philanthropists He was at one time in active support of 69 philanthropic causes he gave away one quarter of his annual income to the poor he fought on behalf of chimney sweeps single mothers sunday schools orphans and juvenile delinquents he helped found para-church, parachurch groups like the society for bettering the cause of the poor the church missionary society the british and foreign bible society and the anti-slavery society He was a man who knew what it meant to make the best use of time, I would argue. The psalmist in Psalm 90 verse 12 says this, he says, So teach us, it's a prayer, So teach us to number our days that we may get a heart of wisdom. Teach us to number our days that we might get a heart of wisdom. There's something about knowing the finality of our days, that lends itself to wisdom. So church, let's manage our time like our days are numbered because they are. Let's manage our relationships like our days are numbered because they are. Let's manage our finances like our days are numbered because they are. But, says Paul, the days are evil. In fact, we do it because the days are evil. So what's the relationship well i think paul is saying that the natural thing to do the normal thing to do would be to waste our time by going along with the path of evil that naturally occurs around us every single day of the year now we're all aware of the obvious evil right we can all think of examples of evil in our world but i think more often we'll waste time on things that are more insidious and less obvious We become victims of our desire for comfort and for pleasure. We become victims of our desire to switch off to God's prompting by getting stuck on endless rolls of Instagram reels or YouTube shorts or TikTok clips or whatever it is, or being caught up in selfish pursuits for wealth and influence. So how do we spend our time? I think there are some things that this passage does not mean. It doesn't mean everybody becoming a full-time missionary but it does mean doing mission it doesn't mean everybody being in full-time ministry but it does mean ministering it doesn't mean you have to write the book on prayer but it does mean praying these three are all imperatives in the life of every single believer so how else is god asking us to make the best use of our time it's going to be different for each of us we each have our unique gifts we each have our unique abilities we each have our unique position in the world in which we find ourselves and as per William Wilberforce you know God's providence has landed us here how are you going to use that time Paul then transitions into an example of one of these useless pursuits Verse 18, and do not get drunk with wine, he says, for that is debauchery. Debauchery is not a word that we use very often, is it? I can't remember the last time I used the word debauchery uh, in casual conversation. Um, and I, I genuinely think it's probably the wrong word to being used to translate the Greek word here. The Greek word is asotia, sotia," which literally means a, you know, when you see a at the front of a word, it means anti or against. sotia," and sotia is a word that means saving. So against saving. And the opposite of saving is waste or excess, right? So you could just say, don't get drunk with wine for that is a waste, that is excess. And this word is generally used in the New Testament to describe moral choices as well. So an immoral waste, similar to the way I think that we would use the word bankruptcy today. You talk about a bankrupt politician. It's not because he lost all his money, he's morally bankrupt, right? Now, I don't want to give the wrong impression here because I like a nice wine or a nice beer just like the next guy. But I think we need to recognise that there's a danger inherent in the overindulgence in these things. Whether that's a binge once a month or a milder excess regularly and certainly a greater excess regularly. I mean, as a medical doctor, I see the harms associated with this problem every single day of my working life. I have patients who have ruined their liver, they've ruined their pancreas, and to be honest, they've ruined their families. They have an episode, they go to hospital, they get out of hospital, hoping that something will save them. And I guess I wanna say as a side note, if you have a problem with alcohol, maybe you need to ask the question, where is it coming from? Because so often I see it's a self-treatment for anxiety, for unmanaged anxiety. And my encouragement is if that's a problem for you get the help you need but see these guys they get out of hospital and they're desperate for something that's going to save them now the other way to translate this verse is do not get drunk with much wine it won't save you it won't save you it will waste you and paul uses this one example of wine and wastage I think as an example for all of those things that move us from the path that God has us on into another path altogether. Now, alcohol is, is kind of an obvious one because its effects are pretty obvious. Uh, initially, obviously, the, the chemical effects in the brain that make it clear that, that what's happening, um, the empty bottles, the smell, the red eyes, the long-term health effects, the hangover the next day, all of these things are really, really obvious to people. And, and, and so Paul uses an obvious example. But although the other examples are easier to hide, they can be just as damaging. I mean, in teenagers, I see more mental health problems as a result of un- unrestricted access to technology than I do as a result of alcohol. And that's not just teenagers. That's just the tip of the iceberg, though. The real problem is that All of these things for all ages, whether they're private addictions or wasted pastimes or more public problems of indulgence and excess are quite literally wasting lives. And it's not new, it didn't start with technology. Every generation has had its own challenges. But what we have, church, is another option. An option that is unknown to so many. But, says Paul, in the end of verse 18, but, says Paul, instead of the bankruptcy, of the numbness afforded by these pastimes, instead of that, be filled with the Spirit. Be filled with the Spirit, the same personal Spirit, who we can grieve as per chapter 4. And I think that's, incidentally, a great proof of the personhood of of the Holy Spirit, that you can't grieve a force, right? You can grieve the Holy Spirit, you can grieve a person. And that Spirit, not only does He enter you when you are saved, and this is, this is a little bit of theology, but stick with me, He doesn't only enter you when you are saved. And remember, Jesus says, you know, I will be with you always, yea, even unto the end of the age. He stays with you always by His Spirit. But He can also fill you. Fill you. I'm not talking about the weird things that you might do under the influence of the Holy Spirit. I, I mean, I'm all for God displaying His power however He sees fit. But that's not what this is talking about. Remember that this is a contrast between a wasted life and a life of wisdom. It's God's spirit in us that leads us down the path of wisdom. The fruits of the spirit are love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness and self-control. So how does being filled with the spirit look among us? Verse 19 says that you will be addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart. Verse 20, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ and submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. That's the result of being filled with the Spirit. We're going to come back to those in a second, and I'm going to discuss verse 21 first before I go back and look at 19 to 21 together. This final verse, verse 21, it serves two purposes. The first purpose is to be an introductory statement for the next one and a half chapters on these specific areas of submission in the Christian life. The second purpose that we'll talk about in just a minute. So the first purpose, as an introduction to the topic of submission within the life of a Christian, you see submission is a necessity in this life. There are many areas where submission is simply expected and normal between the average person and a police officer you submit between a soldier and the commanding officer they submit at work with your boss you submit from students to teachers you submit from children to parents you submit and and this kind of submission is never expected to be done away with by Paul's command here it's not since he repeatedly reinforces the necessity of these areas of submission just below and also in other parts of the new testament An important point, I think, is that we are called to submit only in so much as it is appropriate in these contexts. So for example, your boss can't give you a speeding fine. That would be kind of weird, right? Uh, And you don't do a quarterly performance review with a police officer that pulls you over. Neither would you need to submit to say an elder's instruction on who to marry or a university lecturer's request to abandon your belief in biblical inerrancy. There are areas of life where you submit to God alone, and that doesn't change. But submitting appropriately is a part of the results of the spirit-filled life. I actually think that it's something that the modern person has trouble with. I know I did. I had real trouble submitting to authority. Uh, And it's been a journey for me of learning what the scripture says about submission to authority. But all authority is God appointed. It's there for a reason. Now, verse 21, there are actually two ways to interpret this verse. Now, briefly, one is the way that's usually understood by modern commentators, that each person would submit to everyone else in self-sacrificial love. So submit yourselves one to another, it says. Um, In this sense, you would have to bring in, though, a new definition for the word submit, because, because in every other use of the word submit in the New Testament, uh, it's it's describing uh, a relationship with a power imbalance, a relationship with an authority imbalance. Uh, now, there's very good intent, I think, in this interpretation that everybody submits to each other equally, etc. And it fits really well with I think Jesus' teaching on the on the greatest being those who serve. Right? He talks about that. But you do need to redefine the word submit and serving and submission are not the same thing, they're not. And so for that reason, I favor the second interpretation, which you might paraphrase like this. Those who are under authority should submit to others among you who have authority over them. And I'll tell you why I favor this interpretation because there's a very strong argument that the word used for submission, as I said, is always used to describe those particular kinds of relationship and the other reason is that um, very often the word, the, the phrase one another, it doesn't mean everyone to everyone. There's a, you know, in, it talks about in Revelation that they all killed one another. right? They're all killing one another. Well, it's obviously not talking about everyone killing everyone. It's talking about some people killing other people. Um, so I think that's a pretty, for me it's a pretty, but you can interpret it how you want. The, the fact is, However, it doesn't discount the fact that within the Christian worldview, being in a position of authority necessarily entails a self-sacrificial, other-preferring love. And we're going to get more into that next week. But we've already seen it today. We imitate Christ. Now, we all submit to Christ as Christians. What did Christ do for us? He laid down his life for us. Does he submit to us? No but he lays down his life for us. So the second purpose of this verse, verse 21, is as the final of these four results of the Spirit-filled life from verses 19 to 20. Number one, sharing worship with each other. Number two, worshipping in your heart. There's a public worship and there's a private worship. Number three, being thankful to God. And here, number four, submitting to one another in whatever way that's appropriate. And there'd be so much to unpack here if we had the time, but I think we're running out of time. I guess a life of worship, a life of thankfulness, of fulfilling God's desire for us. And what I want to do is encourage you all to meditate what this might mean for you in your particular context. That finishes this section on walking in wisdom, but it also concludes that whole first half of chapter one on how we walk in love, in light. And in wisdom. So as we wrap it up, I want to ask, how do you go with that? If you're anything like me, you're far from perfect in every one of these areas. What I want to tell you is that it doesn't matter. Someone has already been perfect. And his name is Jesus Christ. So that you don't have to be Perfect. See, Jesus came as the perfect man to be the sacrifice for us, the sacrifice to remove our guilt before God, the sacrifice that means that no matter where we find ourselves in this process of becoming more like him, he meets us there. Jesus is the light, the Bible says. Jesus is love. He is the source of all wisdom. So how does it look to be about our father's business? Well, I think it looks a little like submitting ourselves to Jesus letting him be the Lord of our lives. And through us, he walks in our love for one another, in the light of truth and in perfect wisdom. Behold, he says, Revelation 3, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with him and he with me. Jesus, who took your penalty on himself, wishes to be an intimate fellowship with you. And to lead you forward, will you submit to his leading? Let's pray, Father. Thanks for listening to the teaching podcast of Calvary Chapel, Newcastle. If you'd like to check out more of our teachings, please visit ccn.org.au forward slash teachings.